we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. You may be seated. How's everybody today? Bright and chirpy. You guys ready for some more Revelation doom and gloom? Have I disappointed anybody yet? Because we haven't got any doom and gloom. Well, it's coming. Not today, though. You know, um, as we entered this study to Revelation, I've probably said this a lot, so forgive me for some of you that have heard this already a bunch of times, but it's, it's, I guess it's near and dear to my heart, so I want to repeat it a couple times that, you know, because I, I, I had somebody ask me, and I've had other people ask me, and of course it was a little bit of a check in my spirit, is that, that as we teach Bible prophecy and Revelation, and um, half of, of really, honestly, half of the churches in, you know, in, in the world are afraid of the book of Revelation, and, and, and it, it's all of its idioms and types, and, and they, they make it to be this daunting um, task, and, and there's a bunch of doom and gloom, and, you know, I, I don't know, I'm a, I, I don't know if I'm an 80s kid or a 90s kid. I was born in 74, so I would have been, am I an 80s kid or 90s kid? Anyways, I grew up with this song from Metallica called, Where the Four Horsemen Ride. <laughs> Where the Four Horsemen Ride! So every time I read Revelation, I think of that Metallica song, Where the Four Horsemen Ride. And, and again, you do because of the, you know, if you just sat down and, and really without any furniture prior to the book of Revelation, just read it, I understand it, it can feel doom and gloom and be uh, <coughs> a very daunting task. And the reality is, in order to understand the book of Revelation, you really need a little bit of knowledge of Genesis to Revelation, because Revelation of all the books quotes the Old Testament more than any of them, and all of these different places, and all of this stuff they, that, that need the keys to unlock. But as we approach Revelation for our church, for our study, um, I'm really excited the way that, that God's presented it and the way we're doing it, because it, it, it really is not a hard book to understand, and I'm being honest when I say that, and I say that every week. The book of Revelation is not a hard book to understand, and, and if you put it into its basic outline, then, then you can start to tackle the book of Revelation. And the, the, the beauty of this is those hard, hard-to-understand parts of Revelation, and I've already confessed to you guys, when we get to something in Revelation that is a little hard to understand or that I don't personally understand, I'm not going to try to make something up and pretend to tell you what it means. I'm going to tell you, hey, I don't know what this means. This is what uh, Rabbi Shlomo says, and this is what Rabbi whatever Kaduri says, but I'll tell you what maybe this, but I, I don't know. We'll say I don't know. But the, here's the beauty. In those difficult places, they're usually somewhere between Revelation 6 and 19. And as we know, Revelation 6 through 19 is what? Is the tribulation period. It's a seven-year period of human history that, that God is going to do what? He's going to pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world, and he's going to bring what? Israel back to himself. The Bible says in Romans chapter 11, in verse 25, I think, that, that there's a time of the Gentiles. And it's called the church age. And open your Bibles to Revelation 2. I do have a couple announcements, and I just got to preaching without my announcements, but I want to get my announcements. But in Revelation 2, where we're going to begin today, um, Revelation 2 and 3 to, to the seven churches is, is the church age. That's, um, John said in Revelation, the key to understanding Revelation is 1, chapter 1, verse, you should know this by now, 19, everybody, chapter 1, verse 19, write the things which you have seen, that's the past, that's chapter what? One, write the things which are, that's chapters what? Two and three, that's where we are now, that's where you and I live, we are in chapter two and three, and then the things that are to come, that's chapters what? Four through 22, four and five are what? A scene in heaven, chapter six through 19 is the great 
or the tribulation, times, times, half a times, the time of Jacob's trouble, called many things in the Bible. The first three and a half years of the seven years is called the tribulation. The second uh, three and a half years is called the great tribulation because as bad as it's going to be in the first three and a half years, it's going to get worse in the, in the second three and a half years. And let me tell you just, just as clear as I know how to tell you that none of this stuff is hyperbole. None of this stuff is um, um, stories to teach you a lesson. This is all going to happen exactly as the Bible lays it out. This is God telling the end from the beginning. And, and so where we live in, in the church age, you and I are part of this dispensation of grace. And we are definitely dispensationalists in our theology here that, that through time God has um, um, orchestrated through dispensations. That means that the dispensation prior to Jesus dying on the cross and raising again was relationship to God through the what? Hey, Dave, are you busy? I'm not doing it today, dude, so you might have to come up and preach, man. I can't get them to wake up. I don't know what's going on. No, I'm just teasing. Just just browbeating you a wee wee bit, okay? Um, All right, I shouldn't do that. It's not good for you or me. Um, So what was my question anyways that you guys didn't answer? I know you know the answer. You're just shy. To what? Tell me again. Say it again. I I didn't hear you. Through what? That was the question. Um, in the Old Testament, we, re- we had relationship with God through what? The law. The law. Love is always the factor. It's always, we know now, New Testament, that God is always related to us through faith. And that we're always saved, even though we are under a dispensation of law, that we still related to God and, and kept saved through faith and those things. We know that now, but Moses and, and the disciples and those prior to Jesus dying on the cross lived under the law of Moses. And they, they made animal sacrifices. They had to make pilgrimage to the temple once a year and sacrifice a sheep or what they could afford. They couldn't eat certain foods. And then um, the, the, the most amazing grace and love of Jesus is that when he died on the cross and he rose again, he made cheeseburgers and bacon and queen-size beds kosher. Now, now don't tell me Jesus don't love you. Eat a piece of bacon and tell me Jesus don't love you. The Jews could not eat bacon and to this day won't eat bacon. There's a McDonald's in downtown Jerusalem. And, and it's like, I, I remember thinking to myself, wow, like I've been eating kosher for like a week. I'm ready for a cheeseburger. There's a McDonald's. So I walk in and I'm like, can I have a bacon cheeseburger? And the guy looked at me like, it's still kosher. You could get a hamburger. And then if you go next door, because they can't even prepare meat and cheeses in the same restaurant. They won't allow it. So in some restaurants... They, even in the McDonald's, they have a wall that separates, and they, it's one, but they call it two restaurants, so they'll only do the cheeses and the meats and stuff, or the cheeses on one side, no bacon, uh, and then the, on the other side, so it's all kosher. All right, I'm getting a little off, you guys, sorry. Let me, let me stay on track. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, says that when this dispensation, or when the, it's called the time of the Gentiles, that's you and I, that was the time from Jesus dying until the rapture of the church. That's where you and I live. But it says, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then Christ will return, or the rapture will happen. So, so whenever the number of us, you and I Gentiles, who come to Christ, that God is waiting on, that God has predestined, has foreknowledge, there will come a day when, 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 when God will look out of heaven and he will see that last person get saved, 
that he was waiting on. The, the time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled. And then he will um, send your husband to come and get his bride. And the father will say to his son, go get your bride. And Jesus will meet us in the clouds in the rapture. We do not um, see Jesus. The earth doesn't see Jesus. That we meet him. It says that we will, we will, those who are alive will, and remain will be caught up, a raptus, to meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds. And then in the second coming, Jesus comes on a white horse and the whole world sees him. But he'll come for his bride and the fullness of the Gentiles will be done and the rapture will happen. And then Daniel 9.25 says that, 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 a, that a, a character called the Antichrist will be raised up on um, planet Earth at that time to, to accomplish the things that the Bible predicted would happen. And what are those general things that we understand through the book of Revelation? A one, they're going to form a one world government. But do you know what your leftist ideology and, and, and liberal thinking is all leaning and, and heading us towards right now and has been for the last 6,000 years? Unsuccessfully at times, a little more successfully now. But they're, 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 that's their agenda. If you wonder why they, they, it feels like they hate America and they hate things that are good, it's because they, they need to weaken the United States in order to um, bring about a, a global economy and, 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 and put us on better par with some of the other um, countries and places. And that is an antichrist agenda that's going to happen. So this antichrist will rise up in power and then he will um, sign a treaty with Israel and, and it'll be a, a peace agreement. Israel will believe he's their Messiah. The agreement will last for how long? Seven years, the seven-year treaty, Daniel 9.25. And, and, and then the Antichrist then will do his thing. God will begin to pour out his judgment upon the world. He'll begin to bring Israel back to himself. The Bible says in um, Revelation 7, we'll get to it, if I ever stop just talking and actually study the Bible, um, that, that God is going to put a seal on their foreheads. And all this stuff is pre-predicted in the Bible. Everything we have, we have all these stories in Genesis and Exodus because the Bible is all one just beautiful um, work of art, 66 different books, one theme. But you remember when, when Cain killed Abel? What did, what did God do to Cain after he killed Abel? He put a mark somewhere on him. Remember that story? Put a mark on his forehead. Why did he put a mark on his forehead? Because he didn't want people to kill him for killing his brother, and he, he, he put a mark on his forehead. Well, God, that's just a foreshadow of what was coming in Revelation and in Revelation, God is going to seal 144,000 Jews, 12 from each of the 12 tribes. He's going to protect Israel because Romans says that when the time of the Gentiles comes in and the rapture happens, then right after that, there's a little verse in the New Testament that can be hard to understand. It says, all of Tawila will be saved. Is that what it says? All of Utah will be saved. All of Viva la Mexico will be saved. No, Bible prophecy has to do with Israel. I don't know if you like that or not. Just face it, that's the way it is. It's all about Israel. And the Bible says all of Israel will be saved. And I get the question all the time. Doesn't, isn't the Bible clear that you don't come to salvation unless you come through Jesus? And that's absolutely true. You, nobody, including Jews, will not come to salvation unless it's through Jesus. But when it says all Israel will get saved, that means they're all going to receive Jesus. And so... All right, I've got I to get going. We've got to start. That had nothing to do with even my sermon, my notes. That's a bad habit I have as a preacher, right? Was that for somebody maybe? Somebody lying, raise your hand. Come on, you can do it in church. All right, thank you. Um, hey, real quick, tomorrow night starts VBS 6 to 8. Um, if you haven't signed the kids up or, or, or yet, and it's not too late, you can bring them, bring the neighbor kids. 
Um, most importantly, and I mean this with all sincerity, will you please pray for um, our workers, for our kids? Our Vacation Bible School is um, it's meant to be fun. It's meant to be exciting. They got all of those dinosaurs and T-shirts and all this cool stuff, but all of that has to do with ministry. We do VBS to share Jesus with our young people. Okay, we we want to we want to give them Jesus, and so pray for that. Pray for salvation among our young people. Pray for decisions for Christ. Pray for them to be safe, to have a great time. And uh, please, honestly, make set a little alarm on your phone at six o'clock every night this week and say a quick prayer for our VBS. We would really appreciate it, and it will, it, it, God will hear it, and God will show up and bless us. And then um, our youth retreat is coming up. So I, are there still time to sign up? Is it still okay to sign up? We're closed. Okay. So you missed it. Too bad. Just kidding. Um, hey, Josh and Amber and Grace, and I don't know if anybody else was here helping you guys, Sam and Kim, um, were in the uh, youth room yesterday. They've been asking me for months if they could remodel it. They did a phenomenal job. So I want, I want to show off and brag on them a little bit. So before you guys leave, poke your head in the youth room and check out the new digs. And then um, I have a prayer request for myself. Um, God has put on my heart for a long time now. Pastor Gerald has kind of been pushing me, encouraging me in a certain direction um, to do a missions trip in Georgia. Um, so that's the country of Georgia. So um, at Republic of Georgia, not the state, although I am going to the state of Georgia for a pastor's conference in September, but not a, not a Georgia peach, the Republic of Georgia. We have a CBI there. And without taking up too, more, too much more time, one of the things that, that we do here and what I do is is we have a Calvary Bible Institute that I'm a part of and that I kind of uh, moonlight for. And so I work with them, I travel with them, do some things with them. Um, so our, we planted a CBI in the country of Georgia. I'm going to go there and teach. Um, the, the ministry is a little sensitive there, and um, we have to be careful because what God ended up doing was our, our target right now, we have um, Iranian students who are coming from Iran. Georgia has certain um, laws that allows them to get in. And so one of the fastest revivals in, on planet Earth that's happening today, they tell us, is happening in Iran. You know, it used to be China and other places, but right now, today, more people are coming to Jesus in Iran than anywhere else. And, and it's almost miraculous how they come and, and what God is doing because they don't have Bibles, they don't have churches, they don't have, the gospel has been a, a blacked out area for the gospel for so long, you know, and punishable by death. Um, so, but God is doing a revival there. God is pouring out a spirit there. They're seeing dreams and visions of Jesus. And um, so anyways, there's been this just amazing move of God's Holy Spirit. They're training um, um, indigenous Iranian young men and women um, in a year-long program in Georgia. They're teaching them the Bible. They're teaching them how to make a living. They're teaching them how to farm, how to do special things, um, how, to, how to print Bibles from these little tiny printer things that'll fit in a bathroom of a house and because they can't get bibles but they can print them amazing things that they're doing and then they're able to send them back to iran and, and they're able to do house churches and share the gospel and print bibles and so anyways um we have the opportunity to go and pour into this ministry and so um praying about going i, I know i'm going to go at some point but it's just been real heavy on my heart this weekend as, as god was speaking to me about some things talked a lot so i wanted to ask you guys today to pray for me pray for that mission um, speaking of that, on Wednesday night, I want to invite you guys all to come out. We're going to do food here on Wednesday night at about 6.45. Um, something simple. We'll do sandwiches or pizza or something. Um, Carl hasn't told me yet what the menu is, but come on Wednesday night. We have a missionary from the Republic of Georgia. 
he's not with the CBI. He's, he's actually, I, I would love to introduce you to the guy who led me to Jesus two different times. True story. So he, him and I have been friends since the third grade. He was my neighbor growing up. It was the only Christian I knew growing up was him and his family. Um, and so he, he was the best man in my wedding. So when I got married, I, I felt like the guy who led me to Jesus should be my best man. And we've been friends since the fourth grade. He's also a, a full-time missionary in the country of Georgia. Um, but it's unrelated to the CBI. Just God is doing something phenomenal in Georgia. Maybe on Wednesday we could talk more about it. But something um, supernatural is happening in the country of Georgia. God is doing something there. Other pastors have left huge churches because God has spoke to them clearly to call them to go there. Uh, Pocatello, Idaho, Big Calvary Chapel, pastor just left and, and moved his family to um, Georgia. And so Georgia has very unique immigration laws. Um, um, is that the right word? Yeah. And so we, again, even with the Bible college that we have in Joshua Tree, California, we had a student that was coming from um, Ireland and he was stopped in the airport, and they removed his visa and wouldn't let him come to the United States to go to Bible college for a year. So we, but in Georgia, we don't have any of those problems. We can bring students from all over the world. Everybody can go. My friend's a Marine, Richard Wagemaker. He's, um, and I was telling him, I said, yeah, we're going to Georgia. We have this Bible college, and we're planting a CBI in Georgia. And he was serious as a heart attack. He, he, he did a, a tour of duty in Georgia. And he's like, what are you going there for? That's where every espionage and dirty and thing happens in the world is in Georgia. What are you doing there? No business going there. It's dangerous there. I'm like, it's not dangerous there, dude. Only if you're like in the secret services or something or the CIA or. But anyways, he's like, he had a different impression of Georgia. I thought it was funny, but. Um, all right, guys, that's it. Sorry. So hey, and then one more. Um, so food Wednesday night, seven o'clock. Come here from my one of my best friends in life, the guy that led me to Jesus twice. And um, I'll tell you the story on Wednesday. And we're gonna eat. He's gonna share a little bit about the ministry. Um, you will have an opportunity to invest in Georgia in that, in that time. And we'll be praying for that too. And then the last, last, last thing I, oh, I had on my notes here. I'll try to get rid of this so I don't. Um, I was going to tell you guys last week, and a lot of you have heard already, but um, kind of big news. So I've been wanting to like break it to you. But Lydia got a new job, which is a huge, huge blessing for our family. But the job is with Grand Canyon University in Phoenix. Online. <laughs> they're like are you going with her i was like yeah i'll leave my bedroom and walk over to the office and see her no yeah super super huge blessing uh thanks carl huge, super huge blessing for our family um i'm already way off so i'm just gonna go for you guys hopefully you can bear with me but um god is just so good god is so gracious and so amazing you know like we've been um uh when we came to utah you know, I worked full time. We were trying to plant a church in our house. And, um, you know, Lydia, Lydia was, had to find a job. And so at the time, the boys were young. And it was like they all were going to need braces and growing up. And so God just supernaturally gives her this job at an orthodontist office. And we get all three of the boys through braces. And, you know, in a time when we needed it, we were going to have an extra $20,000, by the way, to put three tw- teenagers through braces. And, and then just last year, we have Luke, who's in college. And Nate, who's going to be a senior this year and headed to college next this year. And my wife carries the stress a little heavier than I do. You know, I'm just like, I'm just like, oh, baby, you got to have faith. God will do it. You know, like, you just got to have faith. You know, God will show up and be faithful. And she's like, you just, you just not faith. I was like, yeah, faith. I have faith. And she's like, no, you just don't do math. And you, you just don't. I'm like, okay, that's good. I don't, I don't. I'm just like, God will show up. But she's been a little stressed about how and wanting to provide and pay for the boys to go to college. And so, so just started praying and asking God, like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to pay for two kids to go to college? And 
And then next thing you know, God's like, and I can't tell all the details, but I'll just tell you, supernaturally drops this, this job opportunity to work for Grand Canyon in Salt Lake City um, from home, and the boys will get free tuition. I mean, just, just alone. She'll make twice as much money as she's making now, full medical benefits for us, so we won't have to burden the church anymore for medical benefits. Um, huge blessing all the way around, just total God thing, you know, um, plus $45,000 a year in free tuition for two boys, you know, starting next year. So anyways, that's a good thing. So I want to give you guys that praise report. Amen. Should we pray now? Getting ready to start Bible study. All right. Revelation two. Let's go there. Are you guys there? Hey, I told you guys last week when we left Revelation one that I rushed through the last six or seven verses and I did, and that there was a couple things that I really didn't want to leave undone, uh, and, and yet now here I am behind again. So I want to be careful. I don't want to do, go too much. But hey, look at me real quick. I just want to. I just want a couple things that I don't want to leave completely too undone. Look at verse number ten in chapter one, and it says, "I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet." We talked about the trumpet part being the voice of Jesus, um, and and again. When, when the rapture scripture happens in Thessalonians, it says the Lord himself blows the trumpet. So it's Jesus that blows the trumpet, not an angel, not anybody else. When the trumpet call of God happens, it is Jesus. The Bible is clear on that. Um, but the first part of 10, it says that I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I kind of wanted to put that in context for our revelation study. What does that mean? Now, here it says the Lord's Day, and automatically, I think, when we think of the Lord's Day, what do you guys think of? Okay, Sunday. We think of Sunday, the Lord's Day, okay, or Sabbath. Now, you and I know, because um, we, we read our Bibles, that Sabbath is sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night is Sabbath. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Sunday is the first day of the week, and, and, and when still... We, we celebrate, we worship on the first day of the week because Jesus rose from the grave on the first day of the week. And the early church, Peter and the apostles, when they planted their churches, they met on Sunday morning. So it was a tradition. The early church started where they, they worshiped on Sunday. And so that we worship on Sunday. Um, but So you think of the Lord's Day. Well, there's another term in the Bible, and it's very similar, but it's called the Day of the Lord. Now, the Day of the Lord, honestly, if I, and I'm being serious, it would take us an entire Sunday, an entire one-hour study to kind of go through and understand the implications of what that term means in the Bible, the day of the Lord. And I'll just give you really brief. The day of the Lord is an ominous time. It, it, it is Revelation 6 through 19 in a nutshell. It's God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. It goes by so many names in the Bible. The time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation, the great tribulation. Um, and so... But this term here is that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So I think the skinny and the simple understanding of this is that on um, Sunday he was, he was in the spirit. But I think there's also more to that because we should all be in the spirit on the Lord's day. You know, it's one of the things we're going to hopefully get to if I ever get to chapter 2 is that we, we need Jesus in every part of our lives and everything that we do and everything that we are. And as a church, as Christ followers, I, I think we, we can... Maybe we're getting beat up a little bit by Satan. You know, when you look at the church, I think there's times when I just feel discouraged because I feel like, man, we are getting our butts kicked. Our, 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 ourselves, myself, you guys, a church, the church in general. Man, we're, we're still struggling with divorce and addictions and, 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 and we're, we're not kicking down the gates of hell, maybe to the potential that God has for us. 
And, and, and so as, as the church, you know, and it feels that way sometimes. But um, we, so again, just saying that to catch this fire for Jesus in each one of our hearts, that, that we recognize that, that we do have some weaknesses. And how do we, as Christ followers, overcome some of those weaknesses? And we'll get to that today. But, but to, so part of it is being in the spirit and not only on the Lord's day. Not only on Sunday, but on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday and Friday. That your life as a Christ follower can't be what you do for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. And God bless the six of you that come on Wednesday nights. You get like three hours by the time it's done. But that is not your, that's not your call. That's not your relationship with Jesus. It's not sufficient. If you're, not a, if you're a Christ follower, it's something you do 24-7, 365, Right? And really pressing into that, and we're going to get into that, being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. But, 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 but I think what we'll see in this particular verse, and, and what I understand with John, is because John is seeing um, events take place that happened 2,000 years after he lived. So either he, and he sees visions. And so one thought is that, is that just like a dream or a vision, he saw some things that he's writing down and explaining. The other idea in this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and you will see this repeated through Revelation, is that God actually brought him in the Spirit to the future to see firsthand the events that are going to take place in the future. And that's why in Revelation you have, um, you have things where John is trying to describe um, events. And like, for example, the voice of Jesus as of, the, as of the waters, of many waters, of rushing waters, a waterfall. And that's the way John describes the voice of Jesus. But, but John would have been limited to the things that were, he could not have said, as the sound of a locomotive, as the sound of a, of a, of a jet. He didn't have those things. And it's possible that he's seen jets and he's seen rockets. And he's seen things that, are, that in our day are very common, but John 2,000 years ago, whether it be through vision that Jesus gave him, or actually this idea that he was brought in the Spirit on the Lord's Day to these events and saw them firsthand. Like when Revelation is unfolding, there's John standing on the beach over there, you know, watching it. And, and that's how he, he was able to describe, but he still had to use terms. So, he, he, you know, he calls things birds that are very possible airplanes. But if he saw an airplane in the year 92, he wouldn't know what it was, and so it would be a, a, a bird to him, right? Okay, all right, I just didn't want to leave that undone, a little nugget there. And then, um, again, just a reminder that the book of Revelation is the only book that comes with its own blessing. A blessing just for reading it. Chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is he who reads those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things. So I want to encourage you guys again, as we going through Revelation as a church, to read it. Read ahead. Even if you just read ahead to where we're going, or I would encourage you to read a couple chapters a day, read the whole book in a week, read as much as you read, as much blessing as you want, read. Because the Bible promises in verse 3 that there will be a blessing just in reading the book of Revelation. Not just in reading, but in reading and doing what it says. Amen? All right, so we had chapter 1 was this powerful introduction to who Jesus is. We saw Jesus in his truly glorified form. John the Apostle, our great um, writer who wrote the Gospel of John. John, who was one of the twelve disciples of Jesus, who was, and out of the twelve, John was closer to Jesus than any other. Remember, John was in Jesus' little inner circle. James, John, and Peter. And whenever um, Jesus wanted to call these guys, these three aside, he would always call those three aside. He brought only those three with him onto the Mount of Transfiguration. 
It was those three that he singled out on many occasions in his ministry. And of the three, John would even single out among the other two because at the Last Supper, John was laying the closest to Jesus and had his head upon John's bosom, or Jesus' bosom. Jesus said of John that he was the beloved disciple, the one that Jesus loved the greatest. John, John would have been there when Jesus rose from the grave. Him and Peter went to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, and obviously Jesus wasn't there. And Jesus appeared to John three times. Once in the room, once on the beach where Jesus made fish. John would have been there in Acts chapter 1 when the apostles were standing there and Jesus appeared to them and Jesus ascended into heaven in his ascension in Acts chapter 1 and the angels appeared to the disciples and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who went up will come back again. And John's had all this experience with Jesus. He was very familiar with Jesus. But in Revelation 1, when John was exiled to the island of Patmos in his old age, he, he was um, one of the Roman emperors tried to murder him by putting him in a vat of oil, and it failed. And then he, he exiled him to this prison place called the island of Patmos that's there to this day. And now is a little vacation spot there um, off the Isle of Greece. And, and so he's there on Patmos, and the Lord Jesus appears to him, where he gives him the book of Revelation or this revelation that he's told to write down and record that we have today. But, but what was different was when John saw Jesus in his glory as described in chapter 1, it says that he perceived, that he turned and he saw the voice of a trumpet. And when he perceived that, that what was going on, it says that he did what? He fell on his face. And that's, that's a very unique, you don't see John have that reaction in any other e event. And so this particular glorified Jesus was, was, was the, the Jesus that we're going to see at the Battle of Armageddon, coming on a white horse, with a sword coming out of his mouth, and a name written upon his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we have this powerful picture of who Jesus is in his glory. And John bowing down and laying down to him. And again, that should inspire each one of us to understand uh, how we appreciate Jesus. And, you know, we joke that when, when you see Jesus and that, and I love this song, I can only imagine. You know, I can only imagine, what will I do? Will I play hopscotch with Jesus or will I play blackjack or whatever, hopscotch and will I dance? You know, no, I'm pretty sure you're going to fall on your face. Oh, when I get to heaven, I want to give Jesus a piece of my mind. These mosquitoes keep biting me. And, you know, why, why do you bring all this? In? Why do you allow this? And now I'm pretty sure you're not going to give Jesus a piece of your mind. I'm pretty sure you're going to fall on your face in awe of the God that loves you and created you. And we get that amazing, powerful picture from chapter 1. And now we get to chapter 2 and 3. The things that were are done, and now we're into the section of the things that are. And in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus is going to write seven letters to seven churches. And they're going to be addressed to the angel of the church of blank, to the angel of seven times. And we, we, did, we covered it last week, but I'll, I'll kind of go over it again today. But let's look at chapter 2, verse number 1. And it says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Now, I don't want you to turn there because it's hard to find. I'll just read it to you. But listen to this verse in Haggai. In Haggai chapter 1, in verse 13, it says, then Haggai, the Lord's angelos, or the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So we have that same word there, that one in Hebrew, the other one in Greek, that says um, the word angel, it simply means messenger. The word is angelos, 
Sometimes in the Bible, angelos is translated angel. Other times, angelos is translated messenger. So in, in, in Revelation, who are these letters addressed to? They're addressed to the messenger or the angel of the church. Now, my personal opinion is that Jesus didn't ask John to physically write a letter on paper and give it or address it to an angel that resides in heaven or in and out of heaven. How many of you guys have put a... How much, what, what would a stamp cost if you're sending a letter to an angel? How, how, what post office would you use? You know, every year in Christmas, right, they have these kids who write letters to Santa or to Jesus, and sometimes the post office will get these and they'll respond with certain things. But um, So, yeah, maybe, I don't know. I don't know why. And there's rebuke in these letters. In these seven letters, there's, there's rebuke and different things. And I don't know why you would need to address a letter to an angel. I know that's one of the thoughts, but to me it makes more, so much more sense that the seven angels that are described would have been the leaders or, if you will, the pastors of these churches that, 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 that would get these letters that would be addressed to the leaders of... Because these are seven literal churches in Asia Minor. Some still exist to this day, either in the form of denominations. And so you might find things here that would address some of the issues in the Catholic denomination and Protestant denominations. Um, we're going to see, even today, some of the issues that are prevalent in the United States. In the biggest churches in the United States today... Um, the largest churches in the United States today um, in certain models, some of the, the things that are going on there are addressed. So these, these seven letters, are they are historical. They would have had to go to literally seven literal churches. And, and, and the, the address to each one of them is to the angel or the messenger. Um, again, I'm, I'm in the camp that says that that was written to the pastor or the leader that would then read it or, or duplicate it to the congregation. So this message would go to all of these churches. Now, the beauty of these, these letters are that we, can, we get a report card from Jesus. I don't know about you, but to me as a Christ follower, I would love, and, and, and God does this for us, but I would love that, that if God just gave me real simple, right? Because I'm a guy, so you just got to spell it out for me, you know? I've been married 23 years, and my wife understands this now. She just keeps it simple for me, you know? She, and, and thankfully, I'm not married to a woman that's like, well, you, if you loved me, you would know. I don't have to deal with that, man. If you're dealing with that, God bless you. Because um, she knows. And maybe she felt that way in the beginning, but now she just knows. This, this guy's too dumb to deal with that. Like, and I tell her, if you'll just tell me what you want, I'll do it. But don't tell me, like, if you love me, you would know. So she just tells me. But I would love for Jesus just to tell me in, in, a, in a, that kind of way what is, what is going on in, in, in my life as a Christ follower, a report card, hey, in, in prayer, in spiritual things, in loving, in, in, in whatever those things are, in giving. This is how you're graded. This is, you know, the areas of your heart and pride and in sin and different things and lust and things that, that, that you have to work on. Or this is your grade and, and just the A, B, C, D, F grade. And I could go through and I could start improving on the things that I need improvement on. Well, that's what these letters to these seven churches are. Really, it's a report card. And so for us as a, as a corporate church, we're going to go through these seven letters and we're going to identify the places that, that Jesus loves and, and things that he commends and says is great. And we're going to try to emulate that. Amen? And the things that Jesus says, hey, these things I, and he uses this word, I hate. Now, it doesn't bother me, but I know some of you guys, that's a strong word, Pastor. <laughs> Jesus said he hates. These things, and so the things that he hates, and anybody, raise your hand if you want to do the things that Jesus hates. Okay, good. we got a good church. 
We don't want to do the things that Jesus hates. So let's, let's read the letters and let's say, hey, okay, those things as a church, let's stay away from. Now, now more importantly, we're going to read these seven letters as children of God, as children, as, as sons of Jesus. You know, one of the things that happens in ministry, and especially, you know, where, where I came from in a big ministry with 100 staff that on the, this church, the church I came from has 100 paid staff members. And what can happen is that ministry can become your job. It can become work. And, 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 you, and you feel like I'm serving God because I'm going to the church every day and I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm, I'm working and I'm serving. And God will say to me, I didn't hire you. You're not my employee. You're my son. You're my son. And you don't get any credit for just being busy all the time. That's not what I want. I want you. I want relationship. I want love. I want you to meet me in the morning when you get up. And so many mornings I come and I wait for you and you don't show up. But don't worry, I'll be there tomorrow. If you want to come tomorrow, I'll be there and I'll wait for you. And I want to meet with you while the dew is still on the grass and on the roses. And I want to meet with you before the manna burns up, the Bible says. And so God is calling us as children. And so as we look at these seven letters, there is a corporate and there's a historical. But more importantly, because it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And the Greek is present tense to the churches. So he's talking also to us. How many of you guys have an ear? All right, 30 of you. How many of you guys have two? Right? Like, so, so it is for us personally. So let's, let's look at this in a personal light as well and, and try to apply these things to our lives just as Christ followers. And what does God want? And so he says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, and now just a little history real quick. I'll just run through it quickly. Ephesus is the only of the seven churches that Paul started. Paul started this church. This is the book of Ephesians. John, who writes this book earlier in his life, was pastoring this church in Ephesus. Timothy was a pastor in this church in Ephesus. We know about this church because it's recorded in Acts um, in chapter 19, in chapter 20, and other places, the ministry and the work that was taking place in Ephesus. Ephesus was a ginormous metropolis city in Paul's day. There was a temple to Diana there. And do you remember Paul was there and he was preaching and, and people were making these idols and Paul was telling them that's sin and they stopped doing it and, um, and, and, the, and the people got upset because he was messing with their income. And it started a riot and for two hours the people said, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so there's a city in Ephesus and this church had been planted by Paul and it's a, it's a good church. And they had, they had ministry going on. They had youth ministry and children's ministry and couples ministry and Bible studies every night of the week and outreach and feed the homeless. And this church had it going on. They had programs and, and they were teaching the word and they were doing good things. And, and, and I mean, this is the kind of church you want to be a part of. And Ephesus was a great church and, and they, were, they were busy all the time. And then, and then it says... Um, Verse number one, the rest of it. These things he says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So he holds the seven stars. This is one of the titles of Jesus, right? Have you read this somewhere? The one who holds the seven stars in the seven lampstands. Now he tells us the seven stars are the seven messengers or angels, or again, the leaders of these denominations or churches. And so the responsibility of these pastors and leaders, and Jesus says he holds them in his hand. 
And that's so Bible. Jesus said, of those the Father have given my hands, of these I've lost none. And then he says, and, and the, the, the lampstands are... Well, if you're not sure, go back to chapter 1, verse 20. It says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. I put the menorah up today because this is a a powerful um, picture that we get here in Revelation that, that says, Jesus says, I'm in the midst of the lampstand. I'm in the midst of them. Listen, Jesus is in the midst of the church. Jesus is here. Do you know why we keep a menorah? Sometimes I, I, I've had people ask me over the years. Because I've always had a menorah of some form or another. I like this one because it's the, it's the Christian version. Normally it wouldn't have the Christian fish here combined with the Star of David. Um, this is not a Jewish menorah. It's a kind of a, a, a crossover, you know, menorah. But, you know, some people have asked before, why do you have a menorah? Isn't that Jewish? Or isn't that, you know, so what is with that? Well, I'll tell you, most of the Calvaries that I've ever been a part of always have a menorah somewhere in the church in the sanctuary. Because the menorah for us, it represents that Jesus is in our midst. So every time you see it, every time you see a menorah, every time you see this, it's this, and it's Bible. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not stretching here. It says right here, as clear as day, that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. And Jesus is in the midst of the church. You know what's popular today in churches? Home church. And, um, you know, in churches, I, I've, been, I've been counseling with a young man who showed up here one time for church. And as he was leaving, he said, Pastor, God told me he lived in Salt Lake somewhere. And he said, Pastor, God told me to come up. And I don't know this church or you, but God told me to come up and pray for you today. And I said, oh, awesome, man. God bless you, man. Thank you. And he put his hands on my shoulders and he prayed for me. And we talked for a few minutes. We exchanged numbers and, and, and he left. And I haven't seen him since. And I've been um, counseling with him. And I felt like God kind of maybe put us together, him to pray for me. And, and maybe God wanted me to encourage him as well. And and, and he's telling me, well, I don't go to church because the, the, the church has issues. And I'm like, well, the, church, the early church had issues too. The church that Jesus was in the midst of, these seven churches, they all have issues. And yes, the church has issues, but you're never going to convince me that the church is not God's plan and God's idea. It's Bible. Guess what was happening in Ephesus and Thessalonica and Ephesians and Galatians and all these places? There were buildings that had churches. We'll see in one of the books of Revelation where one of these prominent buildings was destroyed. And yes, the church has problems. I get it. The church is not perfect anywhere. You read one of these seven churches and, and, and you're going to find there's, there's, there's correction in five of the seven. Nowhere is the church perfect, but it's God's design. Jesus set up the church and it says that he's in the midst of them. We're going to see what some of these churches are doing that was pretty twisted. And you're saying that Pastor, are you saying that Jesus was in the midst of those twisted churches? Yes, absolutely. He gives some warnings to them. And some of them he did correct in a strong way. But he's in the midst of them because he loves the people regardless if, if, if the, maybe the church is a little messed up. And I have to, I have to qualify this. I have to tell you too that, that, this, that within that, that parentheses, we're talking about those that have the right Jesus. It's not talking about he's in just in the midst of every denomination, everything that's going on. No. He's not. He's not. Some of that stuff is not of Christ. And it's not Christ. And Jesus is God. And if you don't have him as your God, if it's anything else, he's not in the midst. And so we have um, Jesus in the midst of our church. 
And again, the church is broken. And like I already told you guys, I already confessed. You know, sometimes it feels like Satan's just kicking our butt. And I, I, you know, I wear it as a burden. I want to, I want to make a difference. What can I do about it? You know, part of what I can do about it is continuing to preach Jesus, continuing to preach relationship with Jesus, continuing to encourage you as Christ followers to love and spend time with in your daily lives with Jesus. Start every day, end every day with Jesus. Keep Jesus through all part of your life because God then will be able to speak to you. And I won't have to tell you, hey, start a ministry at our church. Start reaching out to people in our community. Hey, why don't you do some stuff? Why don't we get together and try to reach this community for Christ? Because as Christ followers, when you're, when you're spending time with Jesus, Jesus is going to tell you and encourage you and guide and lead you to how he wants you to serve him. And then together, we, we can reach this community for Christ. This is the least evangelical community in the United States. I'm not kidding. There's 70,000 people in Tooele County and less than 1% are evangelical Christian. You have a ministry here. We have a call here. We have an opportunity Man, you wouldn't find those numbers. You'd have to go to Afghanistan to find numbers like that. Let's, let's reach this county for Jesus Christ. You think we could do it? And no one, not one of us can do it alone. Together we can do it. Together we can catch a fire. Together we can decide that we believe Jesus is coming and we want to share the gospel and the love of Jesus with our entire community. And then as God makes us effective in that, then we can get bigger and bigger. And then we, we can start reaching the rest of Utah and the rest of the United States and to the ends of the world as the Bible instructs. But we've got to catch a fire for Jesus individually. And that's not going to happen if, if we don't have And I'm not talking about devotions. You should be doing devotions every day unless your devotions become devotion only. Oh, I'm going to, with daily bread. Here we go. Oh, that's kind of maybe, you guys got bad reference. Does anybody know what the daily bread is? The little books that come out once a month and... You got to be in Calvary like 30 years ago to 20 years ago. No, but anyway, or you have your little um, Oswald Chambers daily devotion and you read his little meditation and the scripture and you close it and did my devotions today and you should do devotions every day. But if that's what you, if, if your devotion is not, you want to spend time with Jesus. Make yourself a pancake instead or something. I mean, enjoy your morning in a different way. But really, honestly, we, we, we need to get, get alone and get together and, and, and be, be intentional that, hey, I'm setting this time aside alone. And yeah, it's great to do devotionals with spouses and kids, and we should all do that. But nothing replaces a daily get-alone time where, where you're, you're intentional that you want to hear the voice of God. How many of you guys could maybe confess that you have in your life heard the voice of God? Okay, they, they called, they called, you know, politicians, I forget who it was. Was it Trump or some, I don't know, was it Trump? Somebody who said God told them and then the, the liberal media just went nuts. Like, oh, he, this guy talks to God and God talks back. Like, like that was some crazy concept. No, it's not. There's nothing crazy about it. I saw a couple of these hands when I asked you if you'd ever heard from God. How many of you guys have ever felt the Holy Spirit and God has spoken to you? Doesn't it feel good? Don't you long for that? You know, and so desiring that every day, desiring that it's not enough. Okay, yeah, I want you to read your Bible and pray every day. I preach it like crazy. Read your Bible and pray every day. Read your Bible and pray every day. But unless you're reading your Bible and praying every day because you want to feel the Holy Spirit, you want to know Jesus, you want God to speak to you, and we do it with an open Bible because God speaks to us today through the Word of God easier and more than any other way. That's just the way it is. 
Yes, God can speak to you in your heart in different ways and voices and dreams, but more than not, God just simply can and wants to speak to you through the power of his word because it's alive, it's living, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And then it says, um, so Jesus walks in the midst. He says, I know your works and your labor. All seven letters, Jesus recognizes that these church are doing certain works. Some churches are very... Um, way out there and doing all kinds of social gospel stuff, feeding the homeless and doing all those kind of things out there, you know, hospitals and whatever, you know, in the social gospel. And Jesus recognizes that. And that phrase you'll read seven times in all seven letters. The other phrase that we're going to read seven times is in the, it's consistent is to he who overcomes. And every one of these seven letters has um, some consistencies in that there's usually a, a little bit of correction. Save, save two churches. And then there's a little bit of, hey, I recognize in accommodations, you're doing this well. And then there's correction, but I don't like this. And then there's a, um, something your mom used to tell you. I'll read that in a minute, or your dad. So I know your works and your labor. Now, again, works and labor um, are, are similar, but, but we're supposed to do good works for God. You know, you know the rap that I get as a pastor here in this community, and I've gotten it from a bunch of folks, is that we're the oh, you don't have to do any works or you don't do anything. You're just the sloppy agape. Oh, just live however you want. The grace of God is, is sufficient. And, you know, you just lay on the grace of God, but you don't do anything for God. Well, that's not true. You just don't understand how the grace of God works. But we as Christ followers who, who are saved by grace, we're still called to good works. And that's Bible. James said, faith without works is dead. We believe that and we practice that. The only difference is we just understand that our, our works have nothing to do with whether we go to heaven or not. Jesus died on a cross, a brutal death. He shed his blood. He rose again the third day. And if you think anything you can do can add to what he did on the cross, it's blasphemy. You're taken away. You're saying, Jesus, what you did on the cross is insufficient for my salvation. I have to go and do something to help you out. That's not God. That's not Bible. It's dangerous. And so, but we, we are called to good works. And then he says, um, your patience that you cannot bear those who are evil. And so he's, he's giving them some things that I know your works, your labor. Hey guys, you're doing well. You have patience. You can't bear those who are evil. They don't deal with sin. They don't tolerate sin in this church. If they're evil, they're going to address it. They're going to call it out. And, and there is a, a proper function for church discipline in the church. You know what? The church is a hospital and everybody's welcome here. So if we're a cancer you know, um, place and people come in with cancer. That's pretty normal, right? Like people, what, what's not normal or if they come in with a sickness is if they stay sick all the time in our church, then we're doing something wrong. But, 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 but so we, we have this and, and people come, but, but when, when there is a, a, a evil that God, the Holy Spirit brings to the attention of leadership that's ongoing, then we should deal with that. And not only that in our lives, we should hate evil. The Bible says, you know, you know, I'll tell you this real quickly. I think that if, and the Bible uses this concept that we should abhor evil, we should hate evil, we should love good. But I, even myself, I don't, there's times I don't hate evil. I mean, I don't want to be a part of it. I don't do it, but I watch it on TV all the time. I watch violence and all this stuff on TV and, you know, or I hear about it. And, and maybe if, if, if we, if I, and I just had this thought today, so if it's crazy, you just tell me, but... Um, you know, really, honestly, if, if we started to, in our hearts, literally, legitimately hate evil, I think it would help us to walk straighter, sin less, 
And, and, and so that's kind of the, the idea here is that they hated evil, that, that they abhorred it. When they saw those things, it, it bothered who they were intrinsically. And so for us, those things bother us. They should. Now, I want to draw a line, right? We want to be careful with, with hate again and things we should hate. Um, but to hate evil and to love sin is good. And, and there's a righteous indignation. And to have a righteous indignation against things that, that, are, that are evil or against God. But we never hate people. Now, we're in the Bible. Does, does Jesus ever one time, um, you know, actually, I guess he says he hates Esau, huh? But poor Esau. But we, we like, for example... Jesus said, the Bible says, God hates divorce. But I, I tell people all the time, but God doesn't hate those who have been divorced. That's not Bible. But he hates divorce. So um, kind of the same idea with, with these then hating evil. Then he goes on and he says that, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. So listen, it's good for you as Christians to test things. That's Bible. And I want to tell you, if somebody tells you, if I ever tell you, don't I'll just believe it and don't ask questions and you just have to have faith, go to a different church. Everything I say, test it. Everything I preach, go read the Word of God, pray, double check it. That I, I'm not here to lord anything over you or tell you the way it is to be. In our church, you need to and should be asking questions. You know, you, you can ask the leaders and the pastors, myself, I make myself available. I don't know if it's the most convenient thing, but one of the things I try to do is I stand in the front of the coffee shop as you're all leaving. I try to beat you there so that I can say goodbye and give you the opportunity. If there's something you wanted to say to me, that you will have, every one of you will have that opportunity as you leave here today. And if we don't have time to sit in the foyer as everybody's leaving and, and saying goodbye, then, then give me your cell phone number and say, hey, let's go to coffee this week because I got some questions. We, we should, and it's, it's okay. And again, we want our space here to, to be a place where you understand that you don't have to believe everything we believe to be welcome. But, but, and, and questions are okay. You don't have to ask questions. It's good. It, it, you're welcome to, to ask questions, to understand. And the reason why I stress that is because, you know, some places that it's not the way it is. You know, if you ask questions and you're just, you're not, you're a sinner, you just don't have enough faith or just believe. You just have to have faith. You have to bear your testimony. And believe. But that's not Bible again. And so they tested these guys and they found that they were liars. And, and Jesus says, hey, that's a good thing or a bad thing. Did Jesus say here it's a good thing that they were testing them? Yes, it's a good thing. You test those who say they are apostles and are not have found them liars. And you have preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Did they lose their first love? They left it. You don't lose something like that. You, 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 it's a choice that you make. How do you leave your first love? First of all, what is the first love, you think, in this context? It's Jesus. It's, the, it's how you felt when you first became a Christ follower, whatever it was that God did in your heart that made you make a decision to follow Jesus. It was organic. It was real. It was authentic. And, and it was moving. Right? Man, let me ask you this, right? How did, how did you get your wife to marry you? You did things like brush your teeth and put on deodorant. Things you stopped doing after you had her. 
You know, you, you, you look nice every time you saw her. You talked to her on the phone all the time. You, you reached out to her. You brought her flowers. You wooed her. You did things um, in, the, in the courting stage because you were falling in love. Now you've been married 15 years, and she ain't seen a rose or a stick of deodorant in 10 years. And, and, and so go back and do those things. One of the things we say, and again, it's not a marriage class today, but in, in, in dating our wives and doing those things that we did in the first, doing those things that we did to make her fall in love with us. And, and so continuing that. And so our first love is Jesus. But what can happen and what happened in this church, the loveless church, and they were a good church. They were a busy church. They were doing all kinds of ministry. But in the process of just doing ministry, they forgot the devotion part. They forgot the love of Jesus. They forgot that they were not Jesus' employees. They were his children. They were his sons and his daughters, and he loved them, and he wanted them to um, spend time with him and know him, and, and that's what he was interested in. Listen, God is not interested, Jesus is not interested in a legal relationship with any of you. There's no, no, no thing, checklist you can put on your chalkboard, and if I check these things and I do these things, then I'm a good Christian, and if I don't, then I'm a bad Christian. There's no checklist. There's only one thing on your checklist. Do you love Jesus? Is love an emotion or an action? Love's an action, folks. It carries emotion. It has lots of emotion involved. But if you beat somebody up every day, and then when you're done beating them up, physically you tell them how much you love them, and then you come back the next day and you beat them up and you tell them how much you love them, and you cry because you really love them, is that love? Because love is an action. It's, it's Honestly, it's just what we do. And so Jesus says for this church, you guys have lost your first love. And you need to go back to it. And then we get the three R's. Then you have to remember where you came from and do those things that you did at the first. And so they're right here. There it says, nevertheless, you have lost your first love. So the first one is remember. The second one is repent. And the third one is to redo. Or, or in, in other words, and do the first works, and I added the third R, redo, three R's, remember, repent, and redo the first works. Verse 5, are you guys with me? This is what your dad used to say to you. I never, lo- I never liked it, right? My mom would say it to me, or else, you better do them dishes, or else, you better take out that trash, or else. You, w- you wouldn't think that was a Jesus thing, right? Like That's something like your mom says when she's mad at you. You better do this or else. But, you know, the Bible is full of if clauses. So many, so many in the Old Testament, tons in the New Testament. Hey, if you do this, I'll bless you. But if you do this, they'll become cursed. And the Bible's full of them. Full of them. Like it or leave it or love it. It's Bible. It's in there. And here we have another one or else. Listen, return to your first love or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And then he says, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What were the deeds of the Nicolaitans? The word Nicolaitans is two words. The first word is where we get our English word Nike from. How many of you guys got your Nikes on today? I wish I had a better testimony in this today. I would preach better, but I got a closet full of Nikes, some really expensive ones. And the Nike stock is, you know, as, as, as terrible as they are, really, in, they, they have... Literally, the whole slave shop thing with Nike and China and all that, it's all legit. And they have to know it. And they're, they're literally using slaves in China to make their shoes and those kind of things. And then they want to lecture us on morality. They want to lecture us on equality and on race issues. 
come on, man. And we still buy their shoes like they're going out of style. The word Nike is, is, is a Greek word that means victory or to conquer. And so that's where it comes from. And so this is where the, the company Nike started with was this Greek word. And it's two, that's the root of the word. The second part of the word is laoti or the, 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 the church or the body or the members. So the conquering of the members, Nicolation. So the, the conquering of the laity. And, and so this is a doctrine of lordship. And you see this in churches where, um, where there's, uh, you know, like I, I've never been a part of one. I've been, I got saved in Calvary. I've been in Calvary ever since. So I hear stories um, about certain places where they have a discipleship model church. And if you want to buy a car, if you want to, you have like a leadership board they put over you and you have to report to them and they help you make financial decisions and other decisions. And, and eventually it becomes this lordship over your walk or over your life. And it's very evasive. And it's this discipleship, supposed to be this discipleship model of church. Well, in this vein is the deeds of the, part of the deeds of the Nicolaitans that Jesus said he hates. And listen, no church, no pastor, no deacon is here to lord over you. The Apostle Paul said, I'm not here to lord over you. I'm here to help you with your joy. That's what Paul said his job was. And if Paul didn't want to lord over anybody, I hope a pastor doesn't want to lord over somebody. Because if the Apostle Paul wouldn't do it, I don't want to be a part of it. Listen, I'm here to help your joy. I'm here to guide and lead you. You don't need me. I don't have any authority or any kind of access to God that you yourself don't have. My, my job is Moses up on the mountain meeting with God saying, hey, come on up. You're all invited. Come on. I, you know, because the Moses model is Moses goes up on the top. He meets with God. He comes down. He tells the people what God said. The people tell Moses how they're feeling. Moses goes on the mountain, tells God what the people said. God talks to Moses. And one guy goes up on the mountain and comes down. Well, that's all changed when the veil of the temple rent from top to bottom, right? So now my job is pastor teacher. It's not Lord. It's not access. It's none of those things. We all have access into the Holy of Holies. My job is to encourage you to come in. Because sometimes in the American church, especially, we, we're very content just to be force-fed and just sit in the pews and, and let the pastor feed us the Word of God and teach us what we need to know. And, and, and it's good because we put an emphasis on teaching and on, on doing those things and going through the Bible. We just finished the entire New Testament, and now we're starting over. But we're not doing a good job if we're not encouraging you to come up on top of the mountain and meet, for, meet with God for yourself. And so that's part of the deeds of the Nicolaitans that he hated. The other part was there, was there was a compromising aspect that was taking place in Rome under Constantine and under some of these churches. So the, the, the Nicolaitans was also where, hey, you're, you're young, you just came to Jesus, you gave your heart to Jesus, you have some irons in the world. But listen, you don't have to take those irons out of the world. You don't have to completely change who you are. You can compromise. You can have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, and, and, and it's okay as a Christ follower to do those things. And Jesus said he hated those deeds. And when I told you the largest churches in America have this model, it's what we're talking about, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And so in some of the largest churches in America today, it's called the seeker-friendly model. Or sometimes they call it ecumenical. And everybody's welcome. We're going to use the Bible to tell stories and illustrations of how to leave a good life. But we're not actually going to read it and do what it says. We're just going to kind of bounce out of it. Your, your sin is okay. If you, um, whatever your sexual preferences are, we don't judge you. The Bible's, no, it's not here to condemn you or tell you how to live your life. It's just, you know, and, and these seeker-friendly, don't deal with sin, don't talk about controversial issues, three-point sermon brought out of context, out of the Bible, just to make you feel good. And um, this, this compromise where we, we don't have to be set apart. 
But listen, there's a cost to discipleship. And, and not for a minute. And not how you get in. Okay, How you get in is a little bit different. How you get in is very simple. And there's really no cost on your part. You ask Jesus in your heart. You say, God, I want you. You confess your sin. And you're in. But once you're in, and, and this is what people say, oh, it's, I feel like it was bait and switch. You just said, oh, you want to ask Jesus in your heart. And I felt something that day. And I said, Jesus, come in my heart. And then I came back three weeks later and you said, I had to serve in the children's ministry. And God wants this. And God wants me to tithe. And God, oh, this is a bait and switch. You didn't tell me any of that. Well, sorry. I do tell you that. I tell you that all the time. There's a cost to discipleship. Yeah, it's easy to get in. Easy for you because it's a free gift. But there's a cost of discipleship. You can't just live however you want. Jesus said, don't be caught carousing around and, and, and be caught in drunkenness and, and, and carousing of this world. No time to be shacked up with somebody else you're not married to. And, and there is a cost of discipleship. And if we don't preach that cost of discipleship, then we're guilty of what Jesus hates. He hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans when we compromise and we, and we just try to make church a feel-good place where you can bring your sin and, 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 and go home with it and nobody ever dealt with it. And, and again, we're not to be condemning or judgmental. We need to be tactful and loving in how we deal with these things. But, but it's pretty clear that Jesus said, if you don't repent, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to throw you out. I'm going to put your light out. He said, I'm going to put the, the light out on your, on your candlestick. Anybody want Jesus to put her light out? So we just need to, uh, again, remember our first love, go back to it, repent, and then redo those things that we did when we first courted Jesus. And then he says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, that term is seven times in all seven letters, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. It was a promise of heaven. If you overcome, I'm going to take you to paradise. How many of you guys got cool summer vacations planned? As we close today, somebody raise your hand. Give me one. Coolest summer vacation in here in church this year. Hawaii. I love it. Okay, that's pretty cool summer vacation. Okay. How many of you guys want to go to paradise? Like one that God created. Right? And so he does. And it's, it's okay. It's not like he's hanging a carrot over your, your, your nose. He is hanging a carrot over your nose. But it's real. He loves you. And he's going to bring you to a paradise. But he says, if you overcome, you go to heaven. That simple. Love Jesus. Not perfect. Not without imperfections. Just love Jesus. And then I love it that he just encourages us. Because, you know, as this world gets harder and tougher and life is tough, it's always encouraging to me as a Christ follower that I know that one day heaven awaits and paradise awaits. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. And we're not going to do a last song today, you guys, so we're just going to pray and, uh, and uh, let you guys go enjoy the rest of your day. But I, as um, is our, our custom, and is that we want to give every person who's come in today an opportunity to get their heart and life right with Jesus Christ. It can't be fake. It can't be manufactured. It's you responding to Jesus' call on your life. And maybe you're just not sure. And again, if I ask you, you know, as I stand outside in the lobby today, when you walk by, if I look in the eyes and I say, are you going to heaven? And you say, I hope so. I think so. That's, that's not the right answer. You need to know so. And if, if that's where your heart is, I think so or I know so, God can change that in you right now. As you give your heart and life to Jesus and you, and you just believe in faith, the Bible says in, 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 in the epistle of John that it's written so that you can know that you know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven. 
And so the right answer is, I know so. And it's not arrogant for you to tell somebody, I'm going to heaven. Because that's, that's what I know. That's what the Bible says about me. And I believe that. But if you don't know if you're going to heaven today, you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. You repent of your sins and you ask Jesus to come into your heart. And God will save you today. And it is just a matter of faith. It is that easy to get into heaven, to believe in Jesus. But then, but then once you've made that first step, I don't want to bait and switch you. I'll tell you right now, there's going to be a second step that's coming. There's going to be a third step. And there's, there's, a, there's a cost of being a Christ follower and a disciple of Jesus. But it's a good life and it's full of joy. And its destination is heaven. And we want to make sure that every one of you have that opportunity just today to get your life, your heart right with Jesus. And all you got to do is mean it sincerely as I lead this prayer. If you say this to God and you mean this in your heart, God will hear you. And today the Bible says angels will rejoice when one sinner repents and becomes a believer in Jesus. So I'm going to ask us to pray together. Just ask everybody to pray out loud. Um, If you're a Christian in here today, you're saved. You obviously don't need to pray this again to get saved. So pray it so somebody next to you will be comfortable. Or pray, or pray, or just pray. Pray silently for those that God is calling right now. But let's pray together out loud. Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. I give you my life. I realize I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I ask you to come into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe that you died on a cross. And rose again the third day. And I give you my life. All of my life. I surrender to you. Thank you for your free gift. Of heaven. And eternity with Jesus. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.